Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app, where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. The app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. To start today, I want to look at two cities that both existed in Jesus's day. Uh, One city was built by Herod Antipas called Sephorus. Herod Antipas learned building from the master, Caesar Augustus. Uh, Caesar Augustus said, when I saw Rome, it was made of brick. When I finished it, it was made of marble. Caesar knew about building a city that was a monument to wealth and power. And Herod Antipas learned from Caesar. So when he came back as a young man to become the ruler of Galilee, he decided he would build it like Caesar built Rome. He determined that the city of Sephorus would be a monument to his wealth and power. It was called the Ornament of Galilee. That's how impressive it was. Since the 1980s, many different teams have been excavating the city of Sephorus, and they've learned a lot about it. It was laid out on a grid, as all great Roman cities were. Uh, The north-south street in a Roman city was the primary street, and in Sephorus, it was 44 feet wide. Uh, There was nothing else like it in Galilee. It was paved with stone. It was built so well with an elaborate sewage system running underneath it that it lasted 500 years. And then there was also the main east-west road. And this grid, among other things, served to demonstrate where you stood on the financial status totem pole. The closer you were to the center of that grid, the more you mattered, the more you had. Uh, The goal of your life was to get you there. Everyone knew where everyone else stood. Uh, Herod built an enormous palace for himself in Sephorus with a huge gymnasium, with uh, public baths, public buildings that had pools lined with marble. I mean, this was very rare in Galilee. Uh, There was a bank. Uh, There was a a large temple to Rome and to the gods of Rome. Uh, There was a theater that seated between 4,000 and 5,000 people. Now, all of this, of course, takes a lot of money, and Herod understood about money. Uh, If you're in government or if you are the government, which was pretty much the case for Herod, uh, you knew that raising money was done through taxes, and Herod knew about taxes, that there was a temple tax assessed to people that was supposed to go to the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, There was a land tax on their crops. Uh, Galileans had to pay a poll tax just for being alive. By the time you were 14, if you were a male, uh, 12, if you were a female, you had to pay a poll tax. Uh, There were certain fees, uh, import fees, taxes on roads, bridges, and market goods that were collected by a special group, an increasingly wealthy class called publicans. Uh, Sometimes they used these funds to start Roman country clubs, and then they were called republicans. (laughs) Okay, I just made that up. Uh, Historians estimate, think about this, Up to 70% of a peasant's income went to Rome. Think about taxes that you pay. And think about being a peasant and 70% of your income going to Rome. 
I mean, this is why in Jesus' day, there was an increase of poverty and loss among the vast majority of people. And there wasn't much of a middle class in his day at all. I mean, they, there was the very wealthy, and then there was the vast majority who were very poor. And their plight was getting a whole lot worse in Jesus' day. Uh, you may have noticed how often in Jesus' parables, he talks about absentee landowners and hired laborers who serve them. Well, that's because that was the reality of his day. Increasingly, these wealthy few were taking over land. Many of them lived down in Jerusalem, but they owned the land. And people were becoming sharecroppers or slaves. You can imagine what that did to the sense of unrest in Jesus' day. That's how Herod Antipas could build. And he was so good at what he did, historians estimate that Herod Antipas himself owned between one half and two thirds of all the land in Galilee. Now, contrast that with another city in the first century, a city where Jesus grew up, a place called Nazareth. Often people's feelings about money and possessions are shaped by their family and the home where they grew up. Well, again, thanks to archeology, span we know some things about Nazareth, things about the life that shaped Jesus that Christians for almost 2,000 years have not known. What do you think the population of Nazareth was in Jesus' day? Nazareth was around 200 people. Basically, this means it consisted of several extended families. It was a very small community. I'll tell you how insignificant Nazareth was. The historian Josephus, uh, roughly a contemporary of Jesus, wrote in the first century. Uh, he was a general in Galilee during part of his life. Uh, he knew it quite well. And he wrote about 45 towns in Galilee. He named 45 of them. Guess how often he mentioned Nazareth? Never, not a single time. In the ancient rabbinic writings of that era, in all of the writings of the Mishnah and the Talmud, uh, 63 towns in Galilee are named, never Nazareth. It's not mentioned in the Old Testament. All of Nazareth fit in about 10 acres of land. And that's where Jesus grew up. In Nazareth, which again, archeologists have been working on for years, uh, there were no public buildings, there were no paved roads. A sewage got dumped in alleys, which was foul and often dangerous. Uh, no gold coins were found there. No silver coins uh, have been found there. Just a few bronze coins, no metal cups, no metal bowls. Uh, the houses the people lived in in Jesus's town had no tiled roofs, no stone floors, no frescoed walls, nothing like Sephoris. People lived on dirt floors. This is our Lord. This is where he grew up. They lived on dirt floors. Their walls were made of field stone packed together by clay or mud. Their homes were often built into the side of caves uh, that were used for storage and sometimes living space. Jesus grew up in a village of peasants. They didn't have much food. Uh, they ate bread, some olives, and occasional vegetables or fish. They would have had probably just one set of clothing each. If you picture Jesus and his family in contemporary American terms, you know, small business owners with dreams of upward mobility and financial security, you've got the wrong picture. No one in Nazareth was climbing any ladders. The best they could hope for was to avoid dying or falling into debt. They just paid their taxes and survived. That was Nazareth. 
and Nazareth shaped Jesus. He spent 90% of his life in Nazareth. And his life didn't get much different financially after that. Uh, Jesus said of himself in Matthew 8:20, birds have nests, foxes have holes, the son of man has no place to lay his head. What do we call that in our day? Homelessness. Jesus was homeless. He lived in poverty. He grew up poor in a poverty-stricken town. That was Jesus. These two cities, Sephorus, a monument to wealth and prosperity, Nazareth, a town of desperation and poverty. Now, what does this have to do with the Sermon on the Mount? Well, Sephorus and Nazareth are only three miles apart. It's about an hour away by foot. And not only that, Sephorus was on a hill that was about 400 feet above the valley. Josephus said that Sephorus was called the ornament of Galilee. Do you know what they called it down in Nazareth? They called it the city on a hill that cannot be hidden because it was a showplace. It was a tribute to wealth and power and skill and engineering. And this is what Jesus said his plan was for his followers. In Matthew 5, 14, he said, you are the light of the world. Jesus had no intention of giving up on this world. This dark place will be increasingly flooded with the light of his kingdom. And it's through you and me. You are the light of the world. And then look at this. Jesus, the peasant boy who grew up in poverty, staring at this giant tower of wealth and power, says, a city built on a hill cannot be hidden. He knew that because he stared at it every day. And yet his vision was that his people would build another kind of city. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. Jesus had one strategy for his followers to touch this world. His plan for his church, which he loved so passionately, was to rest upon and to be vindicated by one thing. And it sounds so simple, it's almost embarrassing to say it. In the same way, Jesus said, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That's the only light he named. And that is, in fact, what happened when Jesus left this earth. His followers had virtually no money, no influence, no power, no soldiers, no weapons. I mean, it's a joke that he compared them to Sephoris. But what they did have was a community. It was a small one at first, but it was unlike any community that ever existed in the world. And this is just simply a matter of historical fact. In this community, the rich voluntarily let go and gave up what they had to help the poor. People who had always been separated and hostile toward each other came together, slave and free, male and female, Jew and Gentile. And they were like brothers and sisters and they were reconciled and they were, this, they were kind and they were gracious to one another. I mean, no one had ever seen a power like that before in human history. It was more powerful than Sephora's. Orphans and widows got cared for and honored and celebrated. When people got imprisoned for their faith in Christ, there was a whole community that gathered around them and their spouse and their children. 
This dynamic is so striking that one of the earliest opponents of Christianity, a man named Seleucus, many centuries ago, wrote about the Christian community, Christians con continually attract worthless and contemptible people, idiots, slaves, poor women, and children. And what he intended as a critique, as an insult, his observation about the radical goodness of a community reaching out indiscriminately to anyone at all, and especially to people who had particular needs. I mean, that's what made that community irresistible. And the good deeds that were done by the men and women of this city on a hill were so radiant that they simply overwhelmed the world. This is simply a matter of historical fact. They overwhelmed a Roman empire that was filled with wealth and power. They could not keep people out. They had no buildings, they had no influence, they had no money, no power, but you could not keep people out. For 2000 years, that single image of Jesus, that picture of a shining city set on a hill that cannot be hidden is so powerful that the human race has never been able to forget it. And I'm here today to ask you a single question. Do you think we could be a city like that? Do you think we could be a church like that? I'll make it real personal. How brightly is your life shining these days? Are you involved, at least sometimes, in doing good deeds that have the result of causing people to say, what a good God God is, that he would cause someone like this to be in my world, in my life? Or has your wattage gotten kind of dim? Think about that. And we'll talk more about this in just a moment. It's amazing how much light impacts our everyday life. We're dependent on light for food. Vision matters only because of light. Light generates energy and, and acts as a sterilizing and purifying agent to the toxins of the world. Light heals. You probably know about photosynthesis, but there's something called phototrophism, which is when plants move their leaves to a source of light to get maximum nutrition from that light. They actually move themselves to center on the source of the light. Well, the same is true for you. The closer you are to your spiritual source, the greater your light can shine. Spiritual practices are ways that you can move toward the source of your faith. Bible reading is one example. A few weeks back, at the beginning of our journey through the Sermon on the Mount, I invited you to read Matthew chapters 5-7, through seven, to sit with the words of Jesus, to engage with them, to meditate on them, journal about them, allow them to fill your thoughts. If you haven't been reading yet, start this week. You can start small with just a chapter a day or read all three together. Talk about your thoughts or questions with your small group or a spiritual mentor. As you do that, you'll be drawn closer to Jesus, closer to the source of life. You see, we're not called to manufacture light. In fact, Jesus says, let your light shine, not make your light shine. And when you center your life on Jesus, his light will shine through you. And as a result, collectively through us as a church. Well, let's rejoin Matt and learn how to live this out. 
Today is really about building this city on a hill, about letting lights shine, about doing good deeds so that the watching world give th gives thanks to God, our Father in heaven. Now, I think everyone listening wants to do good. I mean, otherwise you probably wouldn't be listening. My bet is even if you're not sure about God yet, even if you're still kind of exploring faith, you wanna be a person who does good. So what do you do? I'm gonna get very concrete now because I know you're busy. You have commitments that you cannot walk away from. How do you do good? I wanna give you one thought. And this comes from a man named Jim Wallace, who is one of the great Christian leaders of our day in this area. Uh, he wrote a book called Faith Works. And he gives a starting point for people who want to do good. And so I wanna tell you the phrase that he offers and then I wanna kinda of unpack it. This is what he wrote. You've gotta get out of the house more often. And here's the idea. We all tend to live in a little slice of the world where we feel comfortable. I go to school, I shop, I work, I go to church, I do things with people who are like me. Our society just divides people up that way. It puts all kinds of real subtle barriers in between different kinds of people. And as long as I don't get out of the house, people who live in other conditions, people who are different from me, uh, different language, different accent, different skin color, different economic condition, they're just not on the radar screen. They're just not on my mind and on my heart. Most people who are deeply committed to doing good, who are building uh, bigger hearts and trying to reach out as Jesus did, most people in that condition will trace their own transformation to some time when they went to someone in need. Maybe it was on a mission trip. Maybe it was on a service project or something that was out of their comfort zone. And they had a real experience with a real person who had a real name and a real face. Usually what transforms people and motivates them to do good is not a great talk. It's not a good book. It's not a powerful documentary or real moving film. It's a real life experience that grips your heart and seizes your vision and immerses you into the life of a real person. You've got to get out of the house. I have a very deep conviction that if you will do that, if you'll get outside your normal world, if you'll serve and pray for a real person with a real name, your heart will be touched. God will just work in you that way and you'll just want to do good. And you'll begin to think about how you might do that. Not because someone is trying to make you or because you feel like you ought to, it'll just come from with inside you. And the other, on the other hand, I'm here to tell you today that if you don't take that step, if you don't get out of the house, your attention will simply be devoted to other things. It just will. And over time, your heart will get smaller and colder. And the day is coming when you will face a mountain of regret. Not so much for the wrong things you did, but for the wonderful things that you didn't do. So get out of the house. Learn one name. Just one name, one face can be so powerful and I'll tell you why. Because that's the face of someone made in the image of God. Because that name is the name of someone that Jesus died for. Because Jesus said in some way, we don't fully understand that when you extend a hand to someone, no matter how ragged they may look to you, whatever you do for the least of these, that's what Jesus said. Whatever you do for the least of these, 
you do it for me. Mother Teresa used to send members of her community to a home for the dying. She wrote about a young woman from a wealthy family who spent three hours caring for a man brought in from the street who was covered with maggots. And Mother Teresa said to this young woman, you be very careful. You be very loving as you touch him, for there is Jesus in his distressing disguise. That's why when you get out of the house, when you learn a name and see a face, something changes in you, for there is Jesus in his distressing disguise. Now that's why we are utterly committed to building a church of men, women, and children who do good deeds. I mean, this is just the core of the teaching of Jesus. And what I wanna do in the time that remains is give a couple fundamental reasons we need to arrange our lives around doing good. I just wanna walk us through two changes that your good deeds will bring about. And the first one is this, doing good deeds will change you. Every time you do good deeds, it changes you a little bit. Martin Seligman wrote a book called Authentic Happiness. He's devoted his life to studying uh, and trying to figure out what it is that causes human joy and well-being and wholeness. He said, we all tend to think of if we could just get more of the stuff that we want, well, then we'd be happy. We tend to think that the secret to happiness is just more, you know, more money, more sex, more chocolate, more success, more achievement, more stuff, more. But he says it turns out there's a gap between more and enough that can never get bridged. More is never enough. Old question, who is more content, the man with 12 children or the man with $12 million? The answer, of course, is the man with 12 children because he doesn't want any more. Seligman did a fascinating thing. Uh, he gave an assignment to one of his classes. He said all the students were to go out and engage in one pleasurable activity, one thing that they thought would make them happy, and engage in one good deed, and then write down their reflections on both things. He said the results were life-changing. The results of the pleasurable activity, you know, hanging out with friends or watching a movie or eating ice cream, whatever it was, paled in comparison to the effects of doing something good for someone else. Seligman found when people are involved in doing good deeds, they become less self-absorbed. They become less depressed. They become more tuned into others, more capable of empathy. They have a greater sense of community and a decreased sense of loneliness. It's very ir ironic that when people's primary focus is on doing something that will make themselves happy, they get depressed. And when they focus on giving themselves to others, they get joy. When you get to the end of your life, the greatest memories you have will not be the pleasure, pleasurable moments that you accumulated for yourself. They'll be the ways that you spent yourself to bless the lives of other people. Those will be the greatest moments you have. Let your light shine, Jesus said. You know, anytime you do something good for someone in need, it doesn't have to be huge. When you stop, even though you're busy, and listen to someone who's hurting, uh, when you, with all the important things that you have to do, take the time to be kind to someone who's confused or afraid. When you're at a restaurant and there's someone cleaning a table who's in his 40s or 50s and he doesn't speak English very well and he's working two jobs maybe to help his children find a better way of life, 
instead of just treating him like he's part of the furniture that you're entitled to have serve you because you've got money, you really notice him. You look at him and speak to him like someone who has dignity, like someone that maybe you can learn something from. You treat him the way Jesus would treat him if Jesus was in your place. Anytime you do a good deed like that, you change a little. Your heart gets a little bigger. Your light shines a little brighter. You help build a city on a hill that cannot be hidden, that Jesus staked everything on. And it's not just that doing good deeds changes you, it does. Uh, it's the best way for you to live, but it's not just that. When you devote yourself to doing good deeds, you change the world one person at a time, which is really the only way this world will ever get deeply changed. The reality is we live in a world that desperately needs what you and I have to give. Because so many of us live fairly comfortable lives, it's so easy and so tragic for us to shut our eyes to the needs of the world. But we've gotta look. We have to open our eyes. We must do this. You know, sometimes when we look at the needs and we're, uh, we realize they're so great, we can kind of get overwhelmed as a result and become paralyzed and we end up doing nothing. I wanna challenge you the same way someone challenged me. Remember that uh, when you get overwhelmed by the gravity of the need and you end up paralyzed and doing nothing, consider this, where can you do for one what you wish you could do for everyone? So don't look at the overwhelming need, just look where God is breaking your heart for the things that are breaking his heart and do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Just pick one person. I wanna give you some ways that you can do this, some ways that you can get out of the house and do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Uh, you can be a date for a person with special needs at our Starlight Ball coming up in April. Uh, you can visit a homebound senior or someone in a care facility who's living alone. You can provide dignity to those who are alone and desperately need someone to visit with them. You can tutor a child or uh, be a mentor through the foster and kinship program in the Pleasanton schools. Uh, our church partners with City Team in Oakland and Goodness Village in Livermore to serve the home homeless population. You can serve a meal to the homeless community. You can teach a trade to homeless people at City Team or Goodness Village. These are people just like you and me. I mean, they came into the world just like you and me, and they're suffering. If you don't live in Pleasanton, uh, we can help you find something similar in your area. If your heart is for the millions of orphans in the world, just pick one and help one orphan. You can sponsor one child through Compassion International, and it'll make a huge difference in the life of that one child. If you need help getting involved, you can email compassion at blueoakschurch.org and we'll work with you to find a good fit for you. And you will change the world a little bit, just one life at a time. Jesus said, there is going to be one source of light in this dark, fallen, sorry world, and it's you. You are the light of the world. And so I'm here today really to give you just this one challenge. Get out of the house. Visit some of our partner organizations and just learn what's going on, like learn faces and names. You know, if this is just one more talk, just one more piece of information that comes and goes and you don't get out of your house, over time, your heart is going to get a little smaller. 
And one day, you're going to face a mountain of regret. All right, so I have one more thing that I want to ask of you, and then we'll be done. Would you pray with us? Would you pray that we, Blue Oaks Church, will be a city, will be a, a, a building, this city on a hill that cannot be hidden? And would you pray that we're not overwhelmed by the sheer scale of human suffering and misery in our world? Because the reality is people are born into this world one at a time. They suffer one at a time, they die one at a time, and they get helped one at a time. It's a one at a time deal. And if we wait until we can do everything, until we have all the answers to solve all the problems, we'll wait until we die. Pray that we will do for one what we wish we could do for everyone. And I wanna pray for you now. Uh, so would you just bow your heads and pray with me? God, thank you for this challenge for us individually and for us as a church that we would be this city on a hill that can't be hidden. God, thanks that you call us your light that's supposed to shine in our world so that people may see our good deeds and glorify you. God, help us to be that. Help us to be that light in our house and in our neighborhood and in our schools and in our work, drawing people to you through the good deeds that we do. Maybe the reality is, is some of us are not doing anything. So God, I pray that you would uh, break our hearts for the things that break your heart. Put something on our mind and in our heart that you want us to do to be a brighter light in our world. God, would you do that work in us? Help us to pray that same prayer that we prayed last week. God, use me. Use me as a light to shine in this community and use Blue Oaks, God, as that city on a hill that shines so brightly that it cannot be hidden. And God, I pray that through our good deeds, people would be drawn to you and that you would get the glory for it all. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, if you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. Uh, for directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today. Uh, and we hope to see you on Sunday soon.